Oye, ¿escuchaste el último episodio? ¿Cuánto tiempo nos queda para grabar el segundo? I, uh, I don't speak Spanish. Chico, pero tú no entiendes lo que te estamos diciendo. I, I, I think I knew some of those words. Es tu trabajo grabar el episodio. ¿Cómo no entiendes lo que estamos haciendo? If I say yes, will you stop? Bienvenidos al Mestizo Podcast, the show for the mixed people of the mixed church. On this podcast, we explore the complicated challenges of being part of, serving in, and growing an ethnic church in el siglo XXI. As first-generation immigrants age out of their leadership and the Mestizo Church transitions to the second and third generation, how does the ethnic church continue to thrive? What should an ethnic church look like today? These questions and more what we explore together with your hosts, Emmanuel Padilla y la doctora Elizabeth Conde Frazier. Your hosts are Puerto Rican, so you're going to hear some Spanglish de vez en cuando here on the Mestizo Podcast. It's part of who we are. On this episode, we discuss the changing ethnic church from the perspective of our sisters. Elizabeth and I are joined by Angelica Barajona, a recent graduate of Trinity Evangelical Divinity School and a caseworker for World Relief. She also serves with her husband as pastoral leaders of a vibrant multi-ethnic church in Chicago called The Brook, which is actually my church too. We're also joined by Sara Gautier, lead pastor of Living Stones, a growing church in Boston. Sara is the author of Color Me Yellow, Finding Your Voice in the Tension Between God's Promises and Their Fulfillment. And she's the host of Alive Living, a podcast where she discusses the abundant life found in God. These are the ladies, but I'm joined in the conversation with another brother. My best friend and colleague at Moody Bible Institute, Kerwin Rodriguez, joins us to think through how women and men together create the new normal. Kerwin is Associate Professor of Pastoral Studies at Moody Bible Institute and the Program Head for the Bachelor's Degree in Ministry Leadership. That's everyone. So, Elizabeth. Vamos a lo que venimos. Here we are. Now, let me ask you a real question here, Manuel, as we, as we start that. Did you bring Kerwin in because you were afraid to be here with all these high-powered women? Uh, no comment, but uh, maybe. <laughs> I, need, I needed backup. I needed, I needed someone uh, to keep me safe. <laughs> I may know the real answer to that question. <laughs> but you're not telling. You're not telling. Okay. No, Kerwin, I, I truly believe, Kerwin, that the role you play in, the, uh, in this conversation is going to be really important. I'm just joshing around with, uh, with my friend here. <laughs> this is wonderful. Um, I am so happy to be here with Angelica and Sarah and Kerwin because, um, you know, I'm the white-haired lady in this group. And for me, this whole conversation is important because as I continue to age, you're the people who are going to minister to me and who are going to continue to keep this church being vibrant. Um, and to me, that's so important that the church continue to be a vibrant space and a testimony in the world that we're living in. Each one of you has, is taking a, a, a different uh, way of responding to your callings. And I say callings with an S because they're different callings, right? And sometimes uh, we exercise different callings at the same time. There's a question that's been burning for, I think, everyone in the room. So let's go ahead and get it answered because one of us in the room is actually a trained lawyer who ended up pastor. And I'm dying to know how that happened. Sara? Well, that's part of the, that's part of the question. So, uh, Sara, begin and tell us about uh, your, your calling from, from being 
your calling as a lawyer to uh, focusing that calling differently into being a pastor. Tell us a little bit about how those two callings feel. And then Angelica, I'm going to ask you to kind of do the same thing because you're, you're uh, in mixed waters as well. Awesome. Well, it's good to be here on the podcast today. And for me, I grew up in a pastoral family. And so my parents uh, were associate pastors at the church that we grew up at. My dad was a theology professor. Um, and so I have always been around church life. I've always been kind of in the fields and on the ground. And so it was only a matter of time, I think, before that experience for me would mesh together with the rest of my life. And um, I like that you mentioned callings, um, Elizabeth, because I think it's an important idea that all that we do, God can use all of it. And um, for me, I moved to Boston in 2008 to go to law school at Northeastern. And while I was at law school, I was also a youth pastor at a Latino congregation here and God just kind of opened doors for me to continue to do both of those things at the same time. And then five years into lawyering and pastoring, there was this critical juncture where God kind of posed the question to me, if you could choose one of these paths, uh, which would you choose? And if you would allow me to walk with you in this season, I will, I will use all of your gifts and talents. Um, and so it was a it was a hard decision to um, say, you know what, I think even after all this study, taking the bar exam and, and all of this, um, that there would be an option for me to jump into uh, full-time ministry. And so I, I made that transition, um, but knowing that God was going to use it all. And so one of the questions for us as we began church planting here was, what does it look like for churches to partner with small business owners. And so as a lawyer, I was working with small business owners and entrepreneurs in the city. And so we started to ask that question about what does it look like for the church to get outside of the four walls and really be on the ground in partnership with small businesses and entrepreneurs. And we've seen how God has really blessed that journey. And so our uh, church plant, we meet in a CrossFit gym, which is a small Latino business in East Boston, which is a predominantly Latino community here in the city. And part of it is to really embody and incarnate that question of what does it look like for the church and small business to come together for the good and the flourishing of a neighborhood. And so um, I, God has worked it all. And I think I've been more of a lawyer in many ways um, than I was when I was actually practicing law. Let me go back a little bit because I think it's really important for others who are listening. And that is um, you, you spoke about God talking to you in this very familiar way. I'm going to ask you to sort of bring us back there and say, how uh, did the Lord speak to you? Because uh, people kind of want to know that, right? Uh, folks yeah. are like, wow, you know, God talks to everybody except me. Perhaps somebody's at, uh, asking themselves that. So, you know, sort of take us there a little bit because that's a very important part of the journey for women. Yeah. And for me, so I was um, ministering with youth, working with uh, kids from basically middle school all the way through college. And there was a moment um, on that journey where I, I was, I really felt this impression from the Holy Spirit. I was at a retreat with them 
And nor while you're doing the ministering of young people, retreats are big for young people. And you think, oh, they're just pouring out, pouring out into them. But I had this moment um, where actually- You're clutching, you're clutching your, your chest here as you say that. So uh, yeah. tell us, tell us, because we, we, this is an embodied moment, right? Yeah, I had this moment where a young person came up to me and um, it was, he was 13 years old and he came up to me and he started to pray over me and um he started to kind of prophesy into my life at 13 a 13 year old and just listening to you yes yes and he started to he started to ask me questions but it, but i knew it wasn't him like yo puedo sentir like espíritu santo en él and i he started to talk to me and prophesy and he asked me the that question if you had to choose one of these paths either being a pastor or a lawyer, which would you choose? And then the second question, would you trust me to use it all for my glory? Um, and so that was about six months before my dad passed away. Mm. Um, and then when my dad passed away, part of the conversations that we had together were around discerning that those questions um, and, and what would it look like? And then my dad passed away and it would be about six months later before I would really make that decision. And so I think it was a process of, of hearing from that, that young person but then having that counsel from, from my dad and, and being able to walk forward in that. Thank you so much for sharing so, um, so openly with us. I'm going to go back to a couple of things, but uh, before we get too far on your journey, I want to ask Angelica about her journey as well. Um, Angelica, you too are in two waters. You, you're dealing with different callings at the same time. Tell us how that happens for you. Hi, th thank you for the opportunity. And Sarah, thank you for sharing that. It was so inspiring. Now I feel like I need a couple of minutes to grab my thoughts after hearing your amazing story and be like, wow, I love that. Um, so for me, I didn't grow up in the church. I came to uh, faith and came to um, knowing how to walk with God um, in a vibrant church in back home in Venezuela. And it was about when I was 16 or when I started committing myself to God and it was at the same time that my family was doing the same thing and I always loved studying it was one of the things that um, made me thrive I don't know why just God given gift I guess um, of course so my church had um, an opportunity for people to do an what it will be the equivalent of an associate degree in Bible um, Bible studies and ministry so I went ahead and did it as I was doing my college and I always um, I always thought about being involved in ministry as something that everybody does. Um, if you follow Christ, you are part of the church, you serve in the capacity and the gifts that God has given you. But because of the context where I grew up, everybody was what you will say bivocational. Everybody had another profession that they had and um, their day jobs. Um, so for me, my day job, my passion one was uh, working towards development and community development and um, in that in that world I went in that path in college I started working um, as a young professional in um, the field of development community development by home but I always was involved with the church so I never stopped that so I went from different roles I started um, serving with what we'll call what we will call like connections team, like new believers and discipling new 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 young women that came to faith. Um, and I started this as a 16-year-old and I was discipling 12-year-olds and middle schoolers. And then I move ahead um, 
and served uh, in the creative group and started a communications team for our church. And it was always like, you know, in this dynamic of I have my profession, um, the way I connect with the world, but then I have um, a passion and, and a place to serve in my church. And they, they were always together. But then it came this uh, kind of, I would say, disruptive moment in my life when we moved to the United States um, four years ago. And I thought I was going to follow my professional life and I was going to go for a, a master's in international development. Um, but God kept nodding me that that was not the right thing. And at some point I ended up going to Trinity and following that path. And sure enough, I found myself in seminary, something I never really thought I would do, um, but really felt like every step of the way was confirmed by God. And so I ended up in seminary and again, working at a wonderful church in the suburbs of Chicago. Um, yeah, and that was my life. And then when the school stopped, I, I felt like God gave me the all right to go back into the field that I originally went from, um, more of a community development role, but now, and that's what leads me now to be at World Relief. Um, and there I work with as asylum seekers in a new program. I decided to start this program from scratch um, to serve this population with case management and just uh, vital services to help them be connected. And I love it. I, it makes me thrive. And I think World Relief is an awesome place to be, at least for me, because it's an evangelical organization. So I can be with a client, applying for benefits, or maybe talking about housing. And if the conversation leads, we can talk about God. We can pray. We can read the Bible together. And it has happened already many times where I'm, I've been able to open the Bible with immigrants and people who um, are seeking hope. Um, so I find it really rich. I, I wouldn't order my steps this way. And I feel like God, God was providing always that biblical grounding for me to understand what my role really looks like when I'm doing my profession. And in this case, it looks like case management. So, but you're also um, minister in a church with your husband. Say a little bit about what your role is there. Yeah, so my husband is a associate pastor at um, the Brook. He's a um, vibrant church in the northwest side of Chicago and uh, somewhat new. We're hitting the six-year marker. Um, and now I'm part of just serve alongside with him. We uh, pastor one of the small groups. We call them real communities. And it's a form of um, community where we serve the the larger neighborhood. So um, in our in our real community, we're dedicated to serve English students that come to a class in our building. And these are not Christians. We want to connect with them. We help in facilitating the class and assist the teachers. So we function kind of like as a pastors to the volunteers in that in this way and kind of going in double function of as a group we um, are called to be family to one another, but we're also called to make disciples and to serve. So the two of you have some real common pieces here, and there are two questions that I want to ask you that have, uh, where I'm going to invite you to do a little bit of theological uh, thinking, reflection here with all of us. Um, the first has to do with uh, your ministries in the community, right? Uh, in a sense, the two of you are doing uh, some kind of community development. Um, 
Sarah, you're doing it with uh, entrepreneurs in that community, small businesses. Uh, you're doing it with uh, persons who are um, learning to uh, be in this country and what, that, that, what does that mean, et cetera, and connecting with the community around your church. What uh, theology for you informs this ministry that you're carrying out? And the reason I ask is because this is definitely a ministry of the second generation church. Our first generation parents didn't do that or grandparents, and they didn't do that basically because it was hard to interact with uh, the community around them. Uh, they were the first ones getting here. They were figuring out what this was all about. Uh, the first generation tends to sort of uh, group together and try to uh, keep uh, where they came from and just sort of survive. And it's those of us who uh, learn the language and who have a little bit more education and we can branch out and uh, you know feel more confident in the world. We're the ones who get to do all this other wonderful stuff, right? So what is the, your theology about this as the church branches into uh, this new um, dimension of ministry, which is so needed? So tell us a little bit about how you see that. How do you articulate that theology? Go ahead, Angelica. Um, yes, I think the church is called to be a foretaste of the kingdom of God and the kingdom to come. And we know that in the new creation, and I'm intentionally calling it new creation, not just heaven. In new creation, um, God promises us that he's going to wipe out every tear, that he's going to make everything new again, that our, our created world, um, the trees, the animals, everything is going to be restored and that people will be healed. So for me, the church as a foretaste looks like uh, being very involved in showing the world that is broken, the beautiful thing that God is moving us towards and, and reminding us that history is God's history and he is moving us towards this direction and how beautiful it is for us to bring these glimpses of hope and connect with people who um, is seeking for something and show that that God and that in the person of Jesus Christ has embodied all the healing and all the reconciliation that we need. So in my personal calling, that looks like serving immigrants because I know immigrants um, come here in a very vulnerable position. And if we look at the Old mm -hmm. Testament and, and even at the ministry of Jesus, there's this bent, this reach that the arm of God reaches to all nations. And that our moral code, if you will, is often judged by the way we treat foreigners and the most vulnerable peoples like orphans and widows. And many of the people I work with follow, fall in both categories, uh, many of those vulnerability categories. So I'm really happy to, to be able to do this. And I think the only thing that actually keeps me anchor in my job and not drive me crazy. <laughs> this is a side note. A lot of people always tell me like, oh my gosh, your job is so hard. How do you deal with this? Um, the, the secret sauce <laughs> is the gospel. And that's what keeps me anchored, knowing that God has promised restoration and that I don't know who of any of the people I'm talking with, he's willing to reach and who he who he's going to touch and, and transform with the gospel. So it's really exciting um, to see to see the openness of uh, people's hearts when it starts through, through a caring arm or through uh, a real involvement in their need. So a theology of the glimpses of the new creation. Thank you very much. And how about for you, Sarah? 
something that um, often keeps me grounded is thinking about um, how the word became flesh and really incarnated. So we think a lot about incarnational and what does it look like for us to be planted in a place. I think, you know, um, Angelica talks about the gospel being grounded. The gospel happens in context and the gospel happens in a particular time and place and position in history. And I think um, what what has helped us think, uh, I think, a little in a nuanced way about small businesses and entrepreneurs and being kind of planted in a neighborhood is what does it look like for us to really build incarnational embodied relationships with the people who God is already there. God is already pursuing people. God is already in the midst. And so what does it look like for us to partner not only with the with God, but partner with the people who God is already at work in. And so um, I love the way that you know, Jesus spent time really getting to know people's needs and really being planted. Um, and I think so often uh, we we lose that when everything is so transient and we, we, we're not planted in the neighborhood. Um, and so I think for us, it's, it's been really thinking a lot about what does it look like to be incarnational in this community and be really planted in this community? And then listen, listen to the needs of the community and listen to the needs of the neighborhood. Uh, for us, we're seeing an uh, extraordinary amount of gentrification happening in this particular area of Boston. And um, it's been interesting to see how a community that's a predominantly immigrant community who left their countries to come to the United States is now experiencing almost a second exile. Um, and what, is it, what does it look like that our Latino people are always wandering? And so thinking about um, what, it, what does it mean to, to be a, a lighthouse in a neighborhood? What does it mean to be an anchor in the neighborhood, but partnering with the neighborhood in that um, idea incarnationally? Very strong theologies, both of you. Um, uh, Sarah, if, if you don't mind my saying so, I heard Orlando Costas coming through in uh, what you were saying. And I know that um, your father was a person who was mentored by Orlando Costas. So yes. I was like, oh my God, yes. Sarah really grew up around all this stuff. My goodness. Yeah. Um, so let me ask you another theological question. Um, as both of you uh, speak so eloquently about your callings and passionately about how it is that you're carrying them out, I didn't hear either one of you as women speak to any limitations to your callings. Um, so say a little bit about the contexts in which you find yourselves uh, in the church, how you grew up in the church, etc. Were they contexts that uh, encouraged women? Uh, did they encourage women in all of the dimensions of ministry, if not uh, how have you navigated that? So I grew up, um, as we kind of mentioned, in a pastoral family. So I was one of those pastor's kids. Uh, so in, in many ways, I, I always kind of thought I could get away with everything and do anything I wanted, even though um, in terms of pastoral leadership, there was were no women in the, in the pastoral team. Um, but there, I grew up in a family where there are so many Bible teachers, all, many of them women, my, my dad's mom, my mom's mom. I have tias who are, who are Bible teachers in Sunday school and, and children's church and working with kids. And so I, even though I didn't necessarily see it in a formal way at the leadership of the church, I was seeing just all hands on deck in the fields and, and with the people. And so for me, I think... I, there was nothing that was going to hold me back. And I, 
I've just seen it. I've seen it in action, seen it live. They were empowered women. They were empowered women who were empowering other women from a young age. I was, I was teaching Sunday school. I was teaching children's church. I was working with the Hobanes. Like I was also in that space. And so I never, I never thought about the limitations until I got much older. But from a growing up perspective, I was like, all right, let's do this. Vamos, pa'lante. So until you got much older, and entonces, ¿qué pasó? So I think part of my ministerial journey has been because I am a trained lawyer. Um, I have not been to seminary. I am uh, really just trained on on the streets, you know, in the grassroots, in the space with people. I think I, I will say because I've had the privilege of going to law school and being trained in kind of the critical analytical thinking. I can translate that into critical analysis of biblical texts, and it. Sure. So there's, so there is part of that, and I understand that that's part of my my privilege. Being my, a lawyer is dealing with text, right? Exactly, exactly. And then I was an English lit major in undergrad, so I, I'm hardwired for for study, deep study of the text. But because I didn't go through the kind of formal seminary spaces, um, that has been a hurdle for me in terms of denominational ordination, in terms of getting funding for our church plan, and, and different things like that. So. But growing up, I never, I never would have imagined those would have been difficulties. So how have you navigated that? What, what have been your decisions when you came to those places where uh, you were halted a little bit? So one of the ways that uh, we navigated it, we decided to um, move forward as a non-denominational church. So I have Assemblies of God upbringing and Pentecostal leaning. Um, but we decided to be a non-denominational church, and we decided to connect as a church with different church planting cohorts that could be of support on, on the journey. So that, that's one way that we've navigated it. I think at a personal level, um, it, it wasn't easy. It wasn't easy to be rejected by a lot of spaces, to be rejected from, from funding in a lot of ways, because our lead pastor is a woman, because I'm a woman. And I think I had to go through a season of, and I had a, I had a pastor mentor of mine ask me, you know, if, if all of these things said no, of all of these spaces and places said no to you, would it stop you from moving forward in what you feel that God is instructing you to do? And I said, no, I would keep moving forward. And he said, okay, then that's your answer. Like if God has called you to this, then keep taking one step in front of the other. Yeah. So that's, but it's not easy. I will say that. Mm -hmm. you've, you've lived into that now for how many years? So we, it formally for about a year and a half. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for sharing uh, that, that that's not an easy space to be in. Right. Yeah. So the rejection comes because you're not fully um, uh, educated in the masters of divinity, let's say. Right. Um, but still, you understand that you have a calling. It's interesting because we, we can be trained in formal and in informal ways. Yes. And uh, your, your training has been in informal ways. And we need to find um, other ways to recognize those pieces. Angelica, your turn. What's up? Yeah, I resonate with Sarah's experience of growing up in a space that felt like all hands on deck and no restriction as far mm -hmm. as what a woman is called to do. Um, yeah, I never faced a no when I was growing up in the sense of I want to do this. And there was always 
sometimes warnings like, hey, you need to get these things ready or you need to um, make sure your life is holy before you come and teach Preparation and formation. Yeah, but there wasn't anything on the lines of you're a woman, therefore you can do this or you, because of your gender, there is this limitation. And I didn't see that either model in my church growing up because my, um, my church did have pastoral staff that were women. And the way they organized their church leadership is that basically the pastoral staff um, that was larger for, for a Venezuelan church um, that is completely bivocational. Like we had, um, I think around eight or 10 people in the pastoral team. It was uh, a team. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the team make decisions. There wasn't mm -hmm. like an elder board or a, a body of power that was male only. So mm -hmm. I never saw that limitation um, based on gender. So in my yeah, way of thinking, I always felt like God was had order in sense of like, yes, there is um, difference in what a woman is and the way we, we connect with God and the way men are, maybe the way men like to be spoken to, but there's no necessarily a difference of calling or a difference of uh, capacity when it comes to serving the body of Christ. That's kind of what I grew up um, seeing and what I grew up learning. Um, then I think it was more when I entered the seminary space where I realized that there is a whole lot of churches that disagree with the way I grew up. And that was shocking. At first, I was kind of accepted. Mm. And I'm like, well, I don't think it's that bad. But then learning from other women that I found at Trinity and, and learning from experiences of for example, my professors who had a really hard time, uh, my female professors um, in those positions, that, that broke my heart to see that, um, to see that there is all that world. And I feel like at this point, I haven't fully um, resolved these things, if I'm honest. Like, I don't know, I have some theological understanding and my husband and I are on this journey of studying the scripture together to find out what, what do we believe when it comes to women in ministry? What do we believe about the way God um, decided things and what is said and what is culture? What is said in the Bible and what is That's church right. culture? So That's we're right. trying to, to go on this journey and it's been beautiful to do it with him. Um, but yeah, I, I'm still not sure how to navigate those waters fully, honestly. And I give my hands up to Sarah and many other women that are having to face this like strong opposition. In my case, because I feel called to this um, other job, is it feels like it's less threatening, I guess. Um, being a caseworker is not something that, that has to do directly with pastoral ministry or- You're not touching the pulpit. Right, I'm not touching the pulpit at these times. I'm not going around the touchy subjects. So I haven't faced that strong based opposition. And I'm very sorry to hear that Sarah has, and I know many other women have. Um, yeah, so so far, the way I navigate it is in prayer, is in community, having other women around me um, to be able to listen to, to talk about these things. And at the end of the day, it goes back to knowing who God made you to, to be. and um, 
yeah, and trusting that whatever the calling looks like, maybe at this moment, I don't have to face the opposition, but maybe in another moment, I will have to face it harder. Um, so just trusting that if I have to, God will be there to cover and make a way. Amen. Familia, it's your host, Emmanuel Padilla, with a quick reminder. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app. Leave us a review and follow at World Outspoken on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter so you never miss Lo Bueno del Mestizo podcast. If you have a question you want us to answer on the show, you can send in your question on the World Outspoken website following the link in the show notes, or you can call 312-725-2995. That's 312-725-2995. Leave us a 30-second voicemail with your name, city, y pregunta, and we'll discuss it on the last episode of the season. That's it for now. Now let's get back to the episode. Elizabeth, we have the story of two young ladies, as you mentioned, to reflect kind of the newer generation. I know your story can be markedly different. Um, it was in a different time and a different age, and, and you pursued traditional training. And so I wonder if you could also speak to us about your journey uh, and help the audience understand uh, what marks the difference in these two generations and how they took shape. Yeah, well, um, as they both mentioned, there are uh, issues here that deal with culture. There are issues here that deal with sociological pieces and where a community is at in a particular time to think about something or not. Um, we're talking about not only in the Latino community, but in the, um, the dominant community in the United States. You know, it wasn't until the 60s that women were allowed into a lot of different arenas that uh, we're used to seeing them in now, uh, but that wasn't the case before. And so if the church is usually a little more conservative than uh, the majority of society, you can imagine what it was like. Uh, nonetheless, uh, because of uh, what Angelica mentioned earlier, which is the priesthood of all believers, right? Um, and, you know, Sarah, I think, uh, grew up within that understanding as well. Uh, I, too, saw many empowered women in the church and so forth. Uh, but I knew very early on that there was a difference in terms of uh, how empowered one could be. And that was when uh, I was uh, seven and... Um, uh, I was coming out of the office uh, where they were having a meeting with my mother and someone asked me, Nena, ¿qué tú quieres ser? You know, like, what did I want to be when I grow up? And I said, yo quiero ser una pastora. And she says, oh, qué bueno, pero las mujeres no son pastoras, son misioneras, right? And uh, so, you know, that was like, huh? You know, I was seven, you know, how, what am I supposed to think about that? And I didn't know what a misionera was. So they gave my mother a book to read. Uh, with me about the life of a missionary. And my mother read the book to me. And then she was very wise and she asked me the question, ¿Qué tú crees de eso, nena? And uh, like she didn't just, you know, push anything on me. She goes, ¿Qué tú crees de eso, nena? And I said, A mí me gusta esa historia, pero yo voy a ser una pastora. Right? So, I mean, like I was clear. Uh, I, I just kind of came wired that way, right? I was clear. And um, so she, she, my mother taught me to then meditate and pray so that I would continuously be able to hear the voice of God and not become confused by the voices around me, and the voices of culture, the voices of, you know, leaders that might be against it, the voices of theology even, because theology is only an interpretation of the revelation. Theology itself is, you know, it, it represents the, the culture uh, the way that the church in its present moment and culture is understanding that word of God for them, right? But it changes, right? We need to reform 
that theology. We need to uh, constantly be looking at that. So you don't put doctrines at the same level as the word. The word informs that doctrine, right? And the Holy Spirit needs to be able to continuously show us the new ways in which the, the Lord is taking us in that particular time. That's what Sarah has done. That's what Angelica has done. They have followed the spirit to see where it is that God is at work in the world. And they have joined God in those places. And when that happens, the spirit is always opening new arenas and new things that we are to do. Son las nuevas cosas del Espíritu, right? They are the things that Christ said that we would do even greater things. Yes, because as darkness becomes greater, the light is even greater than the darkness. Hello, right? So the, the light is, is ahead of it. And so the Spirit is always going to be um, helping the, the, the tradition along and saying to the tradition, hey, get with it here and moving it along. And as people are needing to interpret, you know, is this really the Spirit? We go back to the revelation uh, back to the word of god to understand what that word of god is telling us in light of where the spirit is taking us and then we reform we expand and deepen the tradition now why do i say that because later on when i did become ordained right my church was very affirming there were some people in the church who uh, were not necessarily uh, of that um, understanding, because as we know, Latino churches are very uh, diverse. People come from many different places and many different theologies where they were coming from. But the pastor was very affirming. And uh, the church was a church that uh, moved me to go on to do my Masters of Divinity and so on and so forth, even though I continued to be bivocational. And in that process, then, I go to do a new church start in New England. Okay? And uh, so uh, while I'm serving in New England, I was in a town where there were all the other Latino churches were all pastored by men. And uh, I won't say what denominations they were because, you know, I don't think that that's the point here. The point is that none of them believe that a woman should be uh, pastoring. And so uh, their interpretation was that I was demon possessed. I mean, what else could I be? You know, I was I was very passionate. I was very uh, forward moving, etc. I was doing new things because I was also the only second generation person. And so how I did church and how I understood how to do church and so forth was kind of different. I have been called to the red district of the town, right? And so uh, the way that I uh, was doing some of the services is I would hang out, you know, with, with, with people uh, who weren't always uh, uh, accepted in the church and so on and so forth. I would have crazy conversations. I had Bible studies where, you know, we talked about sex because, you know, everybody was, was young. How am I not going to talk about our sexuality if, if, if we're that young, right? Latinos are real different. They're accusing you of being demon-possessed. That's a very Latino thing to do. Not to go, she's wrong, she she read the Bible wrong. Just way up there to demon-possessed. We're real different. Right. So the more different you are, the more demons you have, right? Y yo tenía legiones, okay? So, and on top of that, I wore earrings. Lord have mercy, right? So, so I invited all these people who uh, were now creating confusion for the people who are attending in my congregation to the point where there was a great deal of social distancing with people from my congregation. Um, 
And that included a woman who came to me crying and saying, my brother won't come and visit me. And this is the only brother that she has here in the diaspora, right? My brother won't come and visit me because he's afraid that your demons have passed on to me. And then from me, they're going to pass on to him. And this was like a real fear for her, right? So, I mean, you know, we could laugh about this and, and banter about it, but this was like real stuff. It was keeping people from communion and community. Mm -hmm. So I said, okay, hasta aquí llegamos. And I invited all these churches, uh, their pastors and their leaders. I sent cartas, you know, estilo bien este paulino. I sent cartas and I said, please come. Uh, we're going to discuss this matter. Uh, and um, we, this is going to be a moment of reflection. And my rule was this. We're going to reflect together. If in this reflection we decide that God does not call a woman to ministry, I will leave. So I put everything on the table, man. Okay. I put everything on the table. I said, but if we decide that God does call women to the ministry, and you're going to change your whole little piece of interpretation about my being demon-possessed, and you might just want to call me cold. <laughs> so we uh, we then took, uh, you know, they were like, okay, ¿cómo te vas a hacer esto, hermana? Y yo dije, bíblicamente. So I took them to Acts 15, which is the first council of the church, where they're uh, needing to understand how the spirit is moving. Peter and Paul are giving a testimony that uh, the spirit is uh, moving and baptizing in the spirit before they even got baptized in water and much less before they were circumcised, right? And, you know, definitely these people were not eating kosher food at that time. So, you know, it, they, that's, Cornelius did not have, you know, kosher food in his house. So, you know, all of this is taking place and they hear the testimony of what the spirit is doing. And in the midst of that, they understand that there's this tradition that they've been following, right? Which is the law. This is the only scripture they have, is the law. Esta es la ley. And ellos la están interpretando como es. But why is the spirit seemingly going away from esta ley, right? So because the spirit, of course, is the spirit of Christ. And Christ was always expanding and deepening those traditions. And so what they needed to do was that there was a moment of silence, the word says, in which James, the brother of Jesus, then comes up with a scripture. And the scripture that James uses is a scripture that has not yet, it has not been looked at before in light of this issue. So instead of just using the clobber texts, as we would say, right, then we, there's a different piece. So I, after I presented mi testimonio de mi llamado, right, and I let them ask me all the questions that they wanted. Y que averiguar la gente, okay? So... I, I let them ask all the questions that they wanted. I put it all down. And then um, uh, they began to say, well, what do we do here? Because, you know, this is what we understand the word to say. And I said, well, now we come into the, the moment of silence. And we actually sat there in silence, praying and waiting for the Lord to speak to us. Y se levantó una viejita, bien bajita. And she got up and she goes, por sus frutos los conoceréis. Right? Just like that. Uh, you know, you'll know them by their fruits. And I said, hermana, explique lo que usted quiere decir. And she says, si la hermana, su, su ministerio da fruto, quiere decir que Dios la ha llamado. Y si su ministerio no da fruto, quiere decir que se quite de ahí. Right? And I was cool with that. So I says, you know, after everybody else uh, agreed that that was a good text to use to understand what was taking place, then I said to them, uh, ¿cuánto tiempo me van a dar para yo dar fruto? Y los hermanos dijeron, tres años porque el ministerio aquí es difícil. I said, muy bien, en tres años yo voy a escribir cartas y vamos a regresar y vamos a evaluar la situación. Pero mientras tanto, 
me tienen que dejar el espacio abierto para que yo haga la obra del Señor de acuerdo a como el Espíritu me ha llamado. And they said, okay, that's fine. And I said, okay, so the first thing you all are going to do is you're going to say, she's not demon possessed. And I had them say it right there. La hermana no está poseída de demonios. Okay? That was really important. And I told them what they were doing in terms of the communing of people. And they said, oh, sí, no hemos visto eso. La hermana tiene razón, etc. Right? So then they asked me if I would, um, if I came to their church, if I would stop wearing my earrings to their church. And I said, to your church, yes, I don't have a problem with that. In my church, yo me las pongo porque me gustan. So that was it, right? And I want people in my church to know that they can wear them too. I mean, that's it. So if I went to their church, I did. And they began then to recognize me and to call me into their pulpit to preach and to sit with the other, you know, male pastors uh, in, in the pulpit area whenever we came to an anniversary or this or that or the other. A los tres años, I sent cartas to them. And they said, they all came back, the cartas all came back saying, sister, you have not only been able to uh, bear fruit in your ministry, but you have been a blessing to the rest of our ministries as well, right? Because, you know, I didn't compete with them or anything else. I did things with them. I brought ideas, etc." So those, those things that took place, the spirit was in it. I was as patient as I could be. I was pushy as well. But I, was, I wasn't pushy in a fighting kind of a way. I was pushy in terms of presenting the word of God and a process for us to be able to do discernment. There are few people I know that are even half as bold as that, let alone fully willing to try what you did. And I know that it was spirit-led and, and, and the Lord guided you, but... I mean, I hear that story and I still don't know that I would have pulled off even close to something as, as honestly, as gangster as that. I'm just going to say it, as gangster as that. And so, uh, good on you, Elizabeth, for the testimony. But, but I wonder, uh, maybe we can talk through it together as a group, but I wonder how we might support uh, more women, here, particularly here in the States, uh, as uh, the world continues to change, as the second ger generation continues to take on leadership at the church. Uh, and even some third generation folks, um, I wonder how we, how we might empower women to pursue their gifting, to explore their callings, and to uh, and to exercise uh, some some shepherding over over this uh, this call that they have to minister to the church. Well, para que no digan that we are uh, being prejudiced against our dear brother Kerwin, let's let's ask him to uh, begin this part of the conversation. Well, first of all, I am so, uh, I've been learning so much from all of you. And so thank you for sharing and for inviting me to be a part of the conversation. It is really a blessing to, to sit here uh, and listen to your stories and to, to all of your experiences. Uh, I, I, I thank God for, for all of you, for, for all the incredible ministry that you're doing. Um, so I teach at Moody Bible Institute. For me, my sense of calling is, first of all, to preach the word. And second of all, to teach men and women to read and preach the word too. And so uh, at Moody, as some people might know, some listeners might know, that becomes a really interesting context for, for this particular conversation. Uh, Moody, as, as many people know, uh, is, is theologically complementarian, meaning that uh, the theological position of Moody Bible Institute is that uh, the role of pastor, senior pastor, is is 
is limited to 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 qualified men but as a as a division of pastoral studies one of the things that happened that was really interesting for us is that we went through this question together as a division because there were a couple of things that were happening uh in in our in our division number one was the realization that all of us in the division not only affirmed but wanted to encourage women to preach the word uh, even within our theological uh, belief system, we were uh, continually encouraging women to use their gifts, to acknowledge their calling uh, in pastoral ministry, even if it meant different settings for that, for the expression of that gifting. But we came to a point of saying, we have ministered to, we have taught many women and men who, who are called to to, to pastoral ministry in some way or another. And while our theological system uh, prevents us from saying that uh, if we were an ordaining body, we would ordain them to be the senior pastor, we did see many, many of our students, and we, we affirmed many of our students serving in various pastoral roles. And that was the second thing for us, was, was the, the clarification for us that even as Moody Bible Institute, a training place that has been training uh, men and women to read the Bible and to, to minister for so many years, we're not an ordaining body. And so many of our students come who share different theological beliefs. And our job as Moody Bible Institute is to train these men and women to be faithful to the Lord, faithful to their call, and faithful to the Word of God by, by, by ministering with integrity and with and with capabilities that that continue to grow their skills in that. And so for us, this conversation has been really important. Uh, and for me personally, it's been very important because there are so many times where I have students, women who are coming into the classroom who feel uh, that they haven't been giving a voice in our conversations around studying the scriptures or preaching the scriptures. Uh, and, and I felt personally that it's been my responsibility to encourage them to walk with God and to be faithful to the word of God through through faithful preaching and communication of his word for his people. And so I, I it's, it's been a really interesting conversation listening to your, your story, because I think uh, it's, it's been, in my experience, it's been something that has to continue. I have a quick question for you. So, um, Yes, you're not an ordaining body, you're a teaching body. And as such, um, you receive those who come because uh, they feel a calling and you are faithful in your uh, training and teaching of those persons. Um, but what brought you to the position where you felt comfortable to do that? For me, part of it, like many of the answers or the, the stories that were shared, my entrance to this conversation came when I came to Moody Bible Institute. I came to faith through a ministry in Grand Rapids, Michigan. It was a Christian school, and that's where I heard the gospel for the first time. And many of the men and women who, who discipled me, who ministered to me, were from a number of various theological backgrounds. And so in some ways, uh, many of my mentors were from uh, the Assemblies of God Church, from the Baptist Church, from the Christian Reformed Church. And so I didn't know a lot of the nuances in some of these theological discussions until I came to Moody Bible Institute. And all of a sudden I went, oh, wait a minute, <laughs> there are some differences here. And even in my experience, I also went to Trinity for my master's degree, for my master's of divinity. And there I had, I had individuals who, uh, I was a part of a group that I think Angelica was also a part of, the Mosaic uh, Learning Community. 
And that was a wonderful experience for me because I was able to sit and learn with other men and women who felt the call to serve the Lord, uh, but were going in different contexts and share various different theological beliefs. And so for me, I learned to support brothers and sisters who might disagree with me on certain nuances. And, and, and I say nuances because these are secondary matters to me. And, and I know that there's a bit of privilege there for me to be able to say that as a man, but I want to be able to affirm a woman who feels called to serve in, as a senior pastor and to say, hermana, serve the Lord, walk with God, serve the people faithfully. And, and I can do that uh, in a way that encourages uh, what God is doing in his kingdom uh, with integrity. And so for me, I came, at a, I came to this conversation from a very different perspective. That was, uh, we're all trying to do the work of God. And so because I'm not ordaining someone, uh, I can encourage you and make sure that my job is to help you to love God, love his word, and love the people. And so that's where I came to a place of, of, of reconciliation with this, with this really important question. So as I, as I hear you, Kerwing, I really thank you for being a person who opens up a very important space, the, the space of training for women. And uh, thank you for sharing your heart around that and for being in a space that I know may not be, every, everyone might not be congruent with it, but where you have um, continued to be supportive of women as they come in and to, um, to affirm them. Uh, Sara and Angelica, what are some of the things that you have done within your own callings to help to affirm women uh, in, in their spaces of ministry? I think, uh, so I've had a lot of young people around me for years. I was in youth ministry for 10 years. And um, I think part of that being with young people for so long is to see their trajectory. Um, and particularly a lot of women um, and a lot of young women never really seeing a, a pastor at that level. Um, and so I think for me, a lot of it has been in one-on-one in -on -one mentoring and one-on-one -on -one coaching. And one of the gaps that has, has been real for me as I've kind of navigated being a lead pastor is most of the mentoring that I'm getting is from men, predominantly white men, though there have been also some Latino men, which is great. Um, but so I, I consider it a big responsibility for me to, to sit in that space of mentoring and coaching and, and just opening up the space to, to discern how the spirit might be leading, um, particularly this next generation. And I, so that's one thing. And I think the second thing for me is like making sure that there's always a seat at, at the table of, of decision making and conversations that includes um, men and women, young and old, and a diversity of both um, just generational diversity, but also a diversity of, of different sexes. So those are two things that, that have been real for me. Thank you. Those are very powerful pieces. Angelica, why don't you uh, follow up with the same question? Yeah, I think telling stories is very powerful. Um, one of the beautiful experiences I had at Trinity um, was that they recently started a scholarship called Sueña to support Latinas entering in theological education. And as being a scholar to the program of Sueña, I was able to tell my own story of calling and, and seeking theological education with other Latinas who are in college or were considering coming to seminary and just having that opportunity to sit down and talk and 
and name the struggles and say, this is confusing, this is scary, this is challenging, but this is what I see. This is what God has said. This is what the Bible tells me. Um, so kind of having that opportunity to you know, sit down and talk about these issues has been really um, encouraging beyond what I ever will imagine in other young women's lives. And I know that has been empowering for me as well, sitting under um, older women and listening to their stories, listening to your story, Elizabeth, of how you just boldly said, you know what, I put my ministry on the line because I want us to have this dialogue. Um, I think those, that that's powerful. That's how Jesus taught a lot of the bigger lessons in our in our Bible with true stories. So having having those spaces in our, are very key. But I think it's also um, good, and maybe this is the part that has been missing a little bit on my own um, journeys. Having um, people who's able to interpret the Bible with us and not just say, "Hey, this is." Um, this is what I believe, but like, okay, let's look at this text that has been really challenging, that has been interpreted in a way that is very restrictive on women, um, accusatory of women at times. Let's mm -hmm. read it through, yes. a, through a different lens. Let's read it through the whole Bible lens. Um, so having that I've, like, is, has been something I had to sought after. And as I said, my husband and I had to really dig deep to find books that we can read that help us do that. We have had to um, call people one and one and be like, hey, Professor so-and-so, can you sit with us and read this text together? Because we are confused and we need answers and we want to know um, what it looks like to be faithful to the Bible, not just to a tradition or to a doctrine or to um, the ways this person that I admire reads the Bible. Um, so having those voices, and I think for us women to be able to to sit down with the word and deal with with it and be taught how to interpret it, um, I think is is very key. And I wish I had that more. Um, that was that that would have been offered to me more instead of us trying to like hunt it down. Um, mm -hmm. And I know that that that's how some other women, even in in our church, feels like. And yeah. Thank you. I uh, want to echo that and just say, you know, there there's a lot of literature out there. Uh, one of the pieces is uh, that's been written by women is uh, Evangelica Theology, and it does speak about Latinas and uh, a space where we're doing our own theology. Kerwin, um, speak to, to that piece uh, here for a moment, and then I'm going to ask Emmanuel the last question. He's going to have the last word, but he's going to have a doozy of a question. Go ahead. Yeah, one of the things that I think uh, that, I, that I'm listening to and I'm hearing is, is for those of us who are in positions as men, where we want to affirm and encourage women, the something that Angelica said and also Sara said is that uh, part of our job is to listen more, especially as teachers, recognize that students can teach us a great deal. And, you know, when, when those kinds of interpretive questions come up to say, well, let's learn together because I don't have all of the answers. And the more that men and women can do theological reflection together, rather than men telling women what to believe theologically, I think the better we are uh, as a church uh, moving forward for future generations. Thank you. Important that we uh, sit as men and women to do theological reflection and to do uh, moments of discernment together as the community of faith. My dear friend, Emmanuel, you have brought us all together to talk about this topic. 
You are the executive of World Outspoken that does this uh, Mestizo podcast. Uh, how do you see your role in this? Why did you think that this was an important piece for us to discuss? I wasn't going to get away with not answering the question, huh? No, mijito, no. <laughs> Uh, no, listen, uh, this conversation is important to us on a number of levels. Uh, we work with churches across the theological spectrum at World Outspoken, uh, and we work with people from different cultural backgrounds. Uh, many of our writers are from different backgrounds. We've got Filipinos, whites, Latinos, uh, African-Americans who've been writing for us for a time now. And we want to always, at World Outspoken, we want to be thinking about how a mestizo theology contributes to the betterment of the church. And part of that has been thinking about the way that the Hispanic church addresses this question. Uh, I tell this story all the time. My grandmother, uh, if you asked her if she was complementarian, if you use that word, she'd say yes. Wouldn't skip a beat, wouldn't think about it. If you asked her if she could be a senior pastor of a church, she'd say yes. Wouldn't skip a beat, wouldn't think about it. There's no uh, tension for her in that. And part of that is because the conversation has been very different for Latinos. And I think that this presents a way forward. Uh, when Sara and Angelica talked about growing up in an all-hands-on-deck kind of ministry, I did too. My, uh, my first Bible teachers were all women. My, uh, my uh, teacher that trained me to study hermeneutics, to understand the interpreting of the scripture for a Bible competition. I was part of the MAE church, so this is Pentecostal tradition. And uh, the person who prepared me for those Bible competitions was a woman. And so my grandmother loves to remind me that Paul tells Timothy to think about the testimony of his grandmother and mother. That those were the women that helped to train and shape him. They formed his character and taught him the gospel. My grandmother insists on remembering that image. And at World Outspoken, I think we want to advocate for this. We want to remind people that the Hispanic Church does give us a picture of what it might look like to empower women and to have an all-hands-on-deck kind of ministry that is good and for the flourishing of both genders. And I think that's important. It's also important because spiritually we will grow as a church. Amen. If, uh, if anyone in the church feels that they have to squash their gift because they're told that because of their gender or for any other reason that they cannot exercise that gift fully, then what begins to happen is that you grieve the spirit. And if you do that uh, across a number of people in your church, an entire section of your church, uh, let's say if you've told all women that, then what would happen is that you begin to quench the spirit. And we definitely don't want to be doing that. So um, that's, a, that's a really important piece for us to think about when we um, become flippant a little bit about these issues. Amen. No, absolutely. Well, hey, I want to thank all of our guests, Sara, Angelica, Kerwin. Gracias por estar con nosotros. Thank you for contributing to the Mestizo podcast. It is a gift to us and to the church. Uh, it truly is a gift to us. Thank you for your ministry and the different callings and capacities that God has empowered and, and opened doors for you. Uh, we are praying for your continued flourishing and for the flourishing of those that you minister to. And uh, stay safe as you do it in this season of uh, a virus and everything else that's happening. Uh, stay safe as you do it. But uh, blessings on you. Thank you so much for joining us at the Mestizo Podcast. For our listeners, uh, 
If you have questions, thoughts, doubts, concerns, there's going to be an email address that you're going to hear about. More information here as the podcast ends. Send us your questions. Elizabeth and I are going to have a last episode where we respond to the questions of our listeners. So take advantage. If you uh, All questions are open except for the violent disagreements. Those are going to be filtered out. But feel free to give us your thoughts. We want to hear from you. And again, thank you for joining us at the Mestizo Podcast. Bueno, mi gente, that's the end of another classic episode of the Mestizo Podcast. Subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app, leave us a review, and follow at World Outspoken on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter so you never miss Lo Bueno. If you have a question you want us to answer on the show, you can send in your question on the World Outspoken website following the link in the show notes or call 312-725-2995. Translation. 312-725-2995. Leave us a 30-second voicemail with your name, city, and question, and we'll discuss it on the last episode of the season. Bueno, that's it. Bendiciones.